This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Priya Shamsundar, lead economist at the Nature Conservancy. During our conversation, we talked about Priya's career trajectory that led her to the Nature Conservancy and about her current position. We discussed the history of economics and social science at the Nature Conservancy and within conservation more broadly. Priya discussed the increasing appreciation for the role that humans play in conservation that has occurred across many conservation organizations now, but also mentioned that there remains a dominance of natural sciences simply in terms of how many natural versus social scientists are employed at the Nature Conservancy. We also talked about a specific project that Priya has been involved in called the Prana or Breath Project. This deals with agricultural residue management in rural India. There, the massive burning of agricultural residues after harvest each fall has created large-scale smoke and air pollution problems. Priya, along with a previous guest of the podcast, J.T. Urbao, who also now works at the Nature Conservancy, have together been working with local partners in India to conduct focus groups and a baseline survey to understand the preferences of local farmers for how to best address this issue and develop different residue management strategies. In discussing this project, we considered the factors that make it more or less likely for farmers to adopt new farming strategies. And Priya mentioned a finding that the most significant factor in affecting whether or not a farmer adopts a new strategy is whether people in their social network have adopted it as well. Just like many social behaviors, adoption can be contagious. Priya's work is both interesting and important, and I was grateful to have the opportunity to chat with her about it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. But the first kind of formal question I'd love to ask you, Priya, is this origin story question, which I talked to you about. You are the lead economist at the Nature Conservancy, a, a major NGO. I think it's safe to call it a bingo, big international NGO. Um, could you talk to me about the steps you took to get to that point? I know you've also worked with the World Bank and some other organizations. Yeah. And I actually think a sub question for me is, did you consider a more academic path as, a, as, as you were proceeding down your career? Oh yeah, absolutely. So if you want the origin story, it goes all the way back to when I just you know, finished my master's and was on my first job. Uh, and I was an RA, was sent off to do some work to understand how women were using a particular fruit from the forest, a non-timber forest product, uh, to sell it in the local market and add a little cash income to their lives um, in, in rural Karnataka. And, and then the product itself became very popular. It's, um, uh, it's something that you can use to marinate fish like vinegar, you know. <laughs> And it became so popular that the demand for this product grew and, um, and the government decided to auction the product off to the highest bidder. And so between today and tomorrow, these women completely lost their livelihoods because there was an external bidder who came in, uh, bought the product, bought, bought the rights to the product. So the institution completely changed, a new institution got created. And these poor women who had who this was their only source of cash income, lost it completely. 
And so that made me very intrigued. So I went in there to, to sort of understand what was going on locally. And it made me very interested in these connections between market, resource use, and conservation. And that's where I started. But of course, I went on to get my PhD at Duke uh, in the same field, uh, working in Madagascar um, on the first protected area that was ever created in Madagascar, trying to understand what that meant for local communities. And then I was still quite young doing this work, you know, you're starting your career. And I realized that I really, I was dissatisfied with the outcomes of the research because it was, I had worked with this very poor community for a limited period of time, obtained a great deal of information from them and had gotten my PhD out of it. And it really was extractive in that sense, in the sense that I could not return much to that community. And the Prague was getting created, of course, in the World Bank got, was interested in this. So there were, I'm sure other things that happened, but um, there's that low level of sort of lack of comfort with mm-hmm. the way that whole field work operated. I didn't have much, you know, we all did it with good intentions, of course. And I went on to teach at Duke for a year, but felt like I wanted to go back into uh, the nonprofit work and do something that was closer to communities um, and be able to sort of use, use this understanding of that I'd built up through my PhD uh, research and education to give back to communities to some extent. So anyway, that's how I sort of moved out of academia. Um, but it was partly driven by by my experience in Madagascar. Hmm. Um, and so what what were the steps that ultimately took you to start your current position at the Nature Conservancy then? Oh, well, yes, there were many do- detours along the way. A big part of it was setting up a regional organization in uh, South Asia called the South Asian Network for Development and Environmental Economics. So I found my way back from North America to the region that I come from and set up this organization again because I felt like um, there was so much that we needed to learn and understand about these interactions, interconnections between economic development and environmental change. And it made sense for a variety of reasons uh, to look to to have the several countries in the region come together to think through these common and shared problems. So we set up this research and capacity building network, which has, which continues to run. And so I worked on that for many years and then decided that I wanted to, you know, we were living overseas at that point, we were living in Thailand. And when we came back to the US, I. I looked for new opportunities where I could bring my skill sets related to economics and the environment, my knowledge of sort of on the ground uh, actions and, and uh, research needs to a larger organization that worked at a global scale. And there was a job at TNC that sort of tick, checked all those boxes in many ways. So I, I came to, to TNC as a result of that. Okay. So I'm interested, Priya, in your professional identity as an economist. I have it right that your PhD was in economics or, or environmental economics more specifically. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
how would you say your work at TNC and leading up to it reflected your kind of graduate education and how much work did you need to expand your skill set beyond what might stereotypically be thought of as the economist's toolbox? Um, so there's a lot in the economist tool, toolbox that I have used and supported the use of over a very large part of my career. So I've, I've, I sort of remained a traditional economist for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the toolbox offers, you know, so many things, cost benefit analysis for planning being possibly the best known, but many different types of uh, tools that are quite useful and a mental model of how to think about the world and how people think about the world, which is also quite useful and fits many circumstances. Um, So I've, I've used that for a long time. My appreciation of other disciplinary approaches, both the physical natural sciences, the natural sciences in particular, and other social sciences has certainly increased since I started working at the Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I have sort of a deeper understanding of, uh, of the limitations uh, of working within disciplinary uh, silos. I, I, I still think sort of the mental models model that economics mm-hmm. provides and the tools are quite useful, but they're limited if you want to make real world changes because the real world is part of a, is a system. You know, mm-hmm. it's a part of a larger system, and there are systems within systems. And to in, and often as a nonprofit, we're trying to change the entire system. And tweaking one aspect of behavior or one set of levers never changes the system because we really have the long term in mind and our investments, we seek to at least, we don't always succeed, is to try to shift the system towards something that is more sustainable over time and is not just sustainable over the next one year or two years or three years. And for that, we can't just use one set of levers. We need multiple levers which makes um, especially the other social sciences incredibly useful to bring in to complement what we can understand from using the tools that we have in economics. Okay. So we're talking about a mental model here. And we're also talking about specific kind of research tools. If we imagine we're talking to someone who's not an economist and is doesn't know a lot about what the, the specifics of these are. For, for example, like what is an aspect of the mental model that you find quite useful in your work? So, you know, the sort of the pure mental model is of, you know, homo economist, somebody who behaves like a, a rational actor all the time, who responds to a certain set of interest, incentives, um, which may not entirely be true and which would you know which we know for sure it doesn't always work Um, but a mental model that suggests that people respond to incentives is a reasonable mental model for thinking about how 
people may respond to various different changes that they confront. And then you broaden that understanding of incentives to not just monetary incentives. And I don't think economists just think about monetary incentives. That's sort of the popular understanding. But you broaden it to think about moral incentives, for instance, or social incentives, right? And then you have, I think, a more complete mental model, which tells you that people are responsive. They don't act as sort of individual actors doing their own thing all the time. They really are looking around them and trying to understand how the world works, but they also want to improve their livelihoods and economic incentives really matter or making sure that their lives are stable and, um, uh, and move on in a certain path. COVID was, a, was really maybe one of the biggest illustrations of how people respond to social conditions right around them. You know, the mm-hmm. system matters. What exists within the system matters. And um, so anyway, so that's my sort of, if I had to very quickly say, what does this mental model mean? To me, it means that people are quite responsive to a variety of different incentives that any system within which they operate provide. And you mentioned the two of cost-benefit analysis in the context of planning. In your own work at TNC and with the unit that you lead, what are the main economics-oriented tools that you use? So cost-benefit analysis is really sort of the basis of so much, and it's well understood within the conservation community, which makes it easier to use. So if you were to create a business plan for a project, for instance, people would want to understand what the returns on investment for that project might be. Or even if you wanted to identify uh, natural climate solutions and how viable that might be, they might be avoided deforestation or reforestation or peatland conservation. Um, There is a sense that you want to understand, you know, do these these solutions emerge at, at X cost or Y cost? Are they extremely expensive solutions relative to other technology, technological solutions that might be available? Or can we estimate at what cost these solutions become uh, something that that is viable. So in that sense, cost effectiveness, cost benefit has entered the mainstream of conservation thinking, I would say. And so we use it either at the project level or when we're doing research to understand broad strategies Mm -hmm. and even cost these out. The benefits part of the story is a little bit more complicated, a little bit more difficult. And there is an attempt to do it where possible, but because uh, you know these are not environmental services are not transacted in markets, there are no prices attached to them in many cases, pollination services, no prices, which is why sometimes the focus tends to be on cost, the cost side of the story with the benefits being represented by a variety of physical indicators. I mean, it reminds me of our conversation earlier about transaction costs, right? They're very hard to measure. Yeah. And so we tend not to measure them. And it's a question I've had about cost-benefit analysis since I learned it in my, in my own PhD program in public policy was, is how much of a measurement bias is there, particularly for programs that are trying to say improve um, or trying to lead to benefits that are diffuse and lagged, which are then hard to measure. So if the costs are upfront and the benefits are lagged and kind of spread around a lot of people, 
then you're setting yourself up to not, this has been a, this was a concern that I've always kind of had. And maybe it's kind of a straw man because people are, are, you know, do clearly think about these things. You know, how much are you stacking the deck against certain types of programs, like a lot of environmental improvement programs that have this profile of costs and benefits? Uh, I think you are right to worry about it. And, um, and I think people do think about this a little bit more carefully now, which is why standard cost-benefit analysis is not generally done in a very standard sort of a fashion, you know, okay. because people recognize A, benefits are hard to value. And so you might underestimate them or you might have the wrong estimate. And so, and then you are subjecting yourself to a lot of sort of criticism. B, uh, they may occur in the future and therefore you have to think about all kinds of discounting problems and whatnot. But understanding the costs is just a very practical thing to do, you know, including transaction costs, because if you don't, if you don't do it, then you're just, again, maybe shooting yourself in the foot because, you know, you need to recognize costs in order to be able to address them. Right. Is this actually feasible in the first place? Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, who bears the cost? The question of mm. who bears the cost is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And we do much less. We think of cost benefit analysis as something that will help you decide whether the project is a good project or not a good project. But that's, that, that is certainly one legitimate reason, but it really is very important from a practical point of view to understand where, what the distribution is, because you know, you're a political scientist, you know that the distribution of net benefits can completely stall projects, mm -hmm. depending on how they, how the costs and benefits fall. Uh, and also from an ethical perspective, it's so important for us to think through the distributive issues. So I think there's, yeah, there's good practical reasons for continuing to, to use cost benefit as a tool, even though it is a very limited tool. Okay. So Priya, can we take a step back? And I'd like to ask you still a bit about the role of economics, but also broadening it to the social sciences. How have you seen the role of economics or the social sciences more broadly change in the field of conservation, either at TNC or other organizations that you've worked at during your career? I can talk about TNC more specifically. I know there is just this growing interest in the social sciences, and there's a growing sort of a yearning for more a social science-based analysis of complex systems, right? Um, and I think we are at the stage with social sciences that maybe we were 10 years ago with economics as a sub-discipline within the social sciences. TNC is still very much a, a natural science, spatial science-dominated organization. We may have 400 odd scientists or uh, staff in the science family, mm -hmm. of which maybe 10% may be practicing social scientists, maybe 10 to 20% at max, but they're very, very few. And a good number of, of these folks are either economists or use sort of economic terminology to move programs forward. So they understand enough of the jargon and sort of the 
mental model and the frameworks to be able to lean on academics or outside partners to do more economic analysis. While we don't quite understand what type of social science analysis we need to have done and what, what specific tools the other social sciences offer, right? Mm-hmm. We, we just don't have enough social network analysis. We know, you know, maybe that's a type of a tool that the, uh, you know, the sociologists can bring to the table. We haven't used it sufficiently and we don't know enough about how useful it is to ask for it in our, when we think about doing analytical work. There's a lot of interest in behavior change, uh, but we don't quite understand how social psychologists might contribute to the conservation field as yet. I think, you know, there's papers and such, but we haven't brought enough of them into our own organization to really uh, figure out exactly how uh, they might add value as we as we think strategy, as we think uh, projects. Uh, but there is there's this felt need for mixed methods approaches. We have a bias towards quantitative analysis for sure. Uh, you know, it comes from the natural sciences. Data numbers yep. are easier to find in those fields. You know, you and I have to go collect data from the field, but but we still do quantitative analysis. And so that bias carries over and economists do quantitative analysis largely. Uh, but again, we are not quite sure how to rely on um, deep qualitative analysis because mm-hmm. all the reasons not generalizable. And so I think we're, we're struggling a little bit. We're on a, on a path that will take us to a happier place where there's a mix of social science that can inform conservation. We're not there yet. But we, you know, I, it's not to say that we, we, I think we clearly understand the role of power, the role of social norms, you know, the role of politics, uh, the importance of governance and institutions and policy. So it's, I think conservation practitioners have a deep knowledge of this or understand a deep appreciation of all of these issues. Uh, we aren't doing enough science in these fields to really inform um, conservation as yet within the organization. Okay, yeah, I, I, I could imagine that working in the field and trying to get things done would sensitize you to some of the issues you just talked about, inequality and power dynamics. The fact that in order to get things done, you need to talk to a certain person, you need to have social capital, you need to understand who has power in the system if you're actually going to try to change things. So I would imagine that regardless of your disciplinary background, you're going to confront the need to understand those things if you want to make change in the field. No, you're absolutely right. So people in the field, I think, completely understand that. So our theories of change, for instance, at the project level, uh, often will build on uh, who are the influencers, right? Mm -hmm. And and they could be, I mean, that's a new term these days, but, you know, it, it usually is the the head of the village or uh, you know the local government official and so on we've been thinking about so I think people in the field definitely recognize that I have in mind actual social science research that can also inform how people in the field design their projects or how strategies are designed to shift entire systems 
economics has sort of entered that realm, you know, uh, the other social sciences have not quite uh, been normalized into discourse around uh, thinking about strategy and planning and evaluation and sort of all the researchy end of conservation. Sure. Okay. So um, related to this, Priya, could you talk to me a bit about TNC's own history uh, more broadly? I think that as you said in the video that you sent me, you provide a little bit of that history. And I'd love for the listeners of this podcast to also hear just a bit of it. You know, I think for a lot of people, their understanding of TNC relates to how it, you know, what what it started out doing, which is to basically be, you know, based on land trust-based activities, buying land, holding it in trust um, for conservation purposes. My understanding is that that's how things got started and that that's still a big part of the organization and what it's doing. But could you talk to me about how things have developed to include um, other types of activities, including what you're involved in? Yeah, sure. So TNC has been around for over 50 years now, and that's exactly how uh, it got started as a land trust. And I think TNC did that for a very long time but then began to recognize that place-based protection activities could only take you so far. You know, you can only put a fence around so many places, whatever the invisible, however invisible the fence may be. Um, And so they've shifted, the organization has shifted over the last two decades. It's become, uh, there's been a real recognition that conserving nature requires partnership with people that didn't used to be the norm because you kind of preserved nature uh, mm, as a mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But now certainly deep and full recognition that you don't just set aside land, but you work with people to figure out uh, what the conservation options for different natural resources may be. So that's the first shift. Uh, And the other shift is that um, this recognition that nature should be conserved both for itself for the long term, because, you know, we depend on these earth systems and also for the uses that nature offers to people, that people have very specific uses of different ecosystem services. And we really need to pay attention to the uses of these services as much as we would also like to protect nature for itself for what it offers for the long-term health of the earth system. Um, so in practice, what, this, what that has meant, I mean, we operate in something like 70 countries. So different countries operate in different ways, but what, this, what that has meant for the organization is that it has two major goals right now. One is a continued focus on conservation to maintain healthy healthy lands, waters, oceans, um, but with a sustainable use component tied into it. For example, agriculture has become very extractive, has been, is very extractive. Can we make it more regenerative, right? That's a big, you know, can we create a system that uh, is just not poisoning itself over time? Mm. Um, answering those types of sustainable production questions is an important part of the conservation strategy, 
for maintaining healthy uh, uh, ecosystems. Um, we're also, of course, like everybody else, deeply concerned with the climate crisis and the need to address climate change uh, quickly and that, that this is the time, we have very limited time to do it. Um, and um, at least to start making the changes that will result in longer term um, changes. And so we, that's our, you know, so we have a focus on climate change right now, which we didn't used to have previously. It was very much a biodiversity and nature conservation organization. Mm. Our chief scientist now is a climate scientist, mm-hmm. and, uh, which signals how important climate changes to the organization. Now, because of our history and, and because of what we have in terms of capital in the world, our partnerships, our funders and everything else, we don't have a comparative advantage in doing climate change uh, mitigation or adaptation that is related to just about everything. You know, we can't create new technologies that are out there that are trying to suck carbon out of the air or whatnot. But we, we, we do recognize that nature itself is a negative emissions technology. And so to the extent that we can illustrate and conserve nature and enable it to sequester carbon, for example, or restore lands, um, that there we have a comparative advantage. So most of our work is related to that and to some extent renewables. But we also work on climate policy and such, particularly in the US. Okay, great. I mean, it's it's interesting to hear the shift in focus to also be thinking about the human use of nature. I know that there's a history of a discourse about what's referred to as fortress conservation as not doing that and kind of kicking people out of a land to conserve it for nature's sake. And I think a lot of us feel like that that is a positive direction to, to be thinking about, to not also to not always assume that nature and humanity have to be in kind of a a zero sum game that there are Mm -hmm. systems where people can be using the land and benefiting it um, through their own kind of local um, traditional stewardship strategies. So Priya, you also mentioned um, agriculture as being a major focus. So I'd love to piggyback on you mentioning that and ask you about this project that's trying to grapple with the issue of agricultural residues, and I think the fact that they're burned in India. So could you talk to me a bit about that project and your involvement in it? Sure. So um, this project, which is called the Prana project, which means breath in many Indian languages, is uh, trying to tackle a very big, very topical issue in India. Uh, And it's been topical for the last 10 years, unfortunately, but these things don't disappear overnight. Uh, What happens in the fall every year is um, farmers in Northwest India, which is the breadbasket of India, Punjab and Haryana are the two states. Uh, This is in the Indo-Gangetic Plains. This is where the Green Revolution happened. And this is where the wheat and rice for that the government of India procures to manage its food security needs come from, about 40% of the wheat and grain, uh, wheat and rice comes from this region. So it's it's not uh, a region which is subsistence agriculture, even though it's a, you know it's small relative to say the US. Anyway, so every year this the Indo-Gangetic Plains, uh, a majority of the farmers in this area have a two crop system. 
so they go from rice and then to wheat. And when they move from rice to wheat in the fall, they have to clear their fields and prepare their fields to grow wheat after rice is harvested with, through mechanized harvesters. And there's a great deal of stubble, rice stubble, straw that is left on the ground. And so because they have such a short period, they have something like 15 days to three weeks to move from one system to another. They just light a match to the straw and it burns. Uh, and so large areas of land in the plains are burning and Delhi is in the airshed of, of this region. And so a lot of the pollution lands in Delhi, which has what, 18 million people? I can't remember what it is, but it's, you know, it's a large number of people, which and Delhi, the national capital region, which is much bigger than Delhi, um, already has very high levels of pollution. And so in, in this period, the seasonal uh, burning contributes to an even higher amount of pollution. And there are various estimates of how much the pollution increases. And as a result of which, I mean, it's, it's dreadful. Uh, you have schools closing down, you have the equivalent of snow days, you know, you have pollution days. Um, you have um, uh, transportation shutting down. There was a time period, I don't know, a few years ago when uh, the airport in New Delhi didn't allow flights to land because, you know, it's so it's a huge health loss. It's a huge economic loss. So there's a lot of interest in this region to shift the system. So farmers are no longer burning their crop residue and we're trying to figure it out. And that's, that's um, it's a very, um, and again, it's a project where you want to change the entire system, right? We've got, mil, you know, as millions of farmers, I think it's about 2 million, I want to say, but that, probably doesn't cover it. Uh, and some number of them are, some significant a majority of them are burning, right? And so you wanna figure out how to change that entire system to enable them to do something else. And there are technological solutions, but there are clearly behavioral elements to it. There's financial elements to it. And there are institutional and you know, sort of extension services and capacity elements to it. So to shift that entire system is a is a really big and deep challenge that we are tackling, and it's a very intellectually very interesting project, but really an incredibly important project for India and for the conservancy mm. uh, right now. And so, how? And I should have asked this earlier, but how big is the unit that you lead? as the lead economist? Oh gosh, we are very small. So let me explain how this works. Uh, I sit with a couple of people and we are you know, in a group that's called Global Science, which services the needs and does some horizon scanning science uh, for the entire organization. And we may be about 10, 15 scientists, multidisciplinary scientists in this, um, in, in global science, but we also do things like science capacity building and science communications. We have journalists, science journalists who work. And I'll make a plug for their work. It's, there's, a, there's a website called Cool Green Science as part of the Conservancy, which is really fun. And they write stories for Cool Green Science. Um, but, but the Prana project is located in India. And so we are a matrixed organization. So 
uh, your colleague JT Erbal and I are both working to provide them with so social science and economics support. So they think through some of these issues and you know, there's just so much work with a large project like that. For example, we just finished a, uh, focus group discussions with farmers in two districts that um, uh, JT was very involved at. Uh, I think we covered something like close to 500 farmers in these qualitative focus group discussions, but we're about to launch with partners in India, a baseline survey in the next week or so that's being piloted to understand what farmers are using, what types of agricultural practices are in place, across the state, across one state, the state of Punjab, and uh, what their preferences are. We need to understand their preferences. And that's really, really important as we start designing, uh, for instance, markets for alternate technologies that can reduce, that can remove the need to burn because farmers can use different agricultural practices so that the straw is managed differently, but they need different machines to do that um, okay. and we have to design a market for that and so we're we're about to run some choice experiments across the state to understand farmer preferences and mm. what the bottlenecks for these markets you know which we don't understand very well so that's the type of social science economics work that we're doing uh, to support the project yeah, I mean, you're right. It's it's this funny place that I often find myself as well, being intellectually excited about 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 uh, about a real problem, <laughs> which is this funny place to be. It's like I, I I shouldn't be excited about this, but it is also like gratifying intellectually to be thinking about how you tackle this. Yeah, it's it's you know, as I said, that you can't solve the problem. We've tried so many different. The government too has tried. It subsidized different machinery and whatnot. Still doesn't work. There are many political issues at play as well, which really interfere with how solutions uh, might be viewed or implemented. So that's just a very big, uh, so you really have to think about the entire system, but you know that you can't change the entire system, right? I mean, that's just too big because systems evolve over many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And it's hubris to think that you can shift an entire system. So then you have to figure out what in that system can you start shifting that is even feasible within a, a given budget. So how long will this program, this project last? It's a three-year project, but it will probably, yeah, right now it's a three-year project, but we've been working on this off and on, you know, things don't just start and end. So, okay, sure. Yeah. So a final question about this project, Priya, but also kind of taking a step back, thinking about solutions. You mentioned that there are different types of solutions to this problem, some of them technical, some of them behavioral. And, you know, I, I think not implying that these have to be mutually exclusive. Um, in the study of the commons and environmental governance, the way it's done by folks in my community, my research community, there's there are no kind of policy panaceas. There's no one right. silver bullet that's going to solve, which, which, you know, which is going to solve our problems, which sounds good. And it's become a, quite a bit of a mantra for a lot of us. And at the same time, I don't think saying that 
is always going to, it's, it's never going to be enough to, to remove these just real world incentives to, to, to want to adopt a particular policy and apply it in lots of different places. It's, it's just, I think it's part of the process of professionalization that we all go through. You kind of get your tools and you want to use your tools wherever you can. I think this is kind of the policy equivalent of, of that. And if we're also worried about scaling up solutions, which is a part of the discourse about conservation as well in some places, right? Like how do we actually get conservation to scale? There's this intuition that technology can scale more easily than behavior because you can kind of replicate the technological intervention by introducing a new machine here and there and everywhere, as opposed to getting people to internalize different norms, et cetera. So how does a project like this or the work you're involved in more generally engage in these questions, thinking about um, what are your own preferred solutions? Thinking about are we could might we be overgeneralizing the solutions we prescribe in one place or another? Yeah, um, I do think there is a bias towards replicating successful strategies, whether they are policy-related strategies or market-related strategies, because you learn. You know that's how large organizations work. You learn from something and then you try it someplace else, you learn a little bit more. So the social scientists amongst us within the organization do raise questions related to, you know, what are the enabling conditions? Why did this work here? Under what circumstances? Do you have the same types of conditions elsewhere? Are you gonna get uh, adverse effects that you are not expecting because of the circumstances? So people are smart about this. It's not that they aren't, but there is a certainly a tendency to try and replicate because, and I don't know how else you would do it uh, because, you know, you have to learn also from these uh, experiments really in intervening in different places um, and come up with some general generalizations based on these experiments otherwise you're you know you're just acting as if everything is done independent of each other and you can't do that in a large organization if that makes sense i don't mm -hmm. know if that fully answered your question but no it does yeah 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 i mean the sense that there's going to be some bias towards what has worked before is in some ways you say it's reflects the realities of working in a large organization i mean i think it also reflects the realities of human psychology that if I try this here, I'm going to try it again somewhere else until I get a strong enough message that I shouldn't be doing that anymore. Yeah. And, and the solutions are quite challenging, right? We don't have 15,000 solutions that we mm -hmm. can, in our sort of toolbox of solutions, which have worked and that we can try in different places or that we can just tweak the way people work in the system, then adjust itself. Um, so the limited PES, Payments for Ecosystem Services, we've it wasn't the norm 15 years ago or 30 years ago, and suddenly it became this big thing. And now we are saying, okay, it doesn't work under these circumstances. Da, 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 da. So you learn from all of that. So I think, I think that's just the way things work. Um, I, I wish there was a way to shortcut that process. And you'll have to tell me if there are sort of, if there's emerging learning about how you do things differently 
you know, how do you, if you do want to transfer uh, a policy experiment in one place to another, what do you look for to see if that might, that transfer is even something that's reasonable or not? In the case of Prana, it was interesting because we really thought there was a technological solution. At least the technological solution was identified by many experts uh, as being a, quite a viable solution that made sense to farmers as well. And we looked at the economics of the solution, whether it would work for farmers to use a certain type of technology to undertake a certain type of agricultural practice where they didn't burn, rather they mulched the straw, used, used the straw as mulch. And it seemed to offer them a reasonable win-win. You know, uh, it works for farmers, profits increase, um, and it reduces burning. But it hasn't taken off. Um, it just has not, it didn't go viral like we thought it would, despite significant effort in that direction. Now, there may be many reasons why, some, we know that there are many reasons why some things go viral and other things don't. And it has something to do with transaction costs and something to do with heterogeneity of the human aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, the human input that goes into the use of a technology and, you know, and, and the extent of the benefits. So you, you, we can debate forever what that might be, but. Well, there's also the, the social factors, right? Kind of, you were mentioning influencers earlier. If someone yeah. has a model, you know, role models matter. I'm not, it's not quite the word that most people would use here, but seeing someone else who's using a technology and getting results from it often matters as much as anything else, some yeah. more than like some abstract argument made by someone you don't know very well. Yeah, so we, you know, we know for sure that the single most, based on data that we have, that the single most important determinant of somebody using this alternate technology, over and above all other factors like amount of land and da-da-da, um, is whether somebody in their social network uses the technology. Mm -hmm. We really do know that social proof matters, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they want to see either themselves using it and learning something from it or having their friend or neighbor or somebody else that they trust use it. But the, the, the challenge, of course, is then how do you, you know, you need a certain amount of adaption, adoption before you have enough social proof to be totally. able to scale something. You know, so there's all these. And then how do you tweak that? You can't really do that very easily um, other than through some very traditional ways. So we're, we're grappling with all of those issues. Yeah, it's, it's the same problem we have in so many contexts, right? The hardest part is getting something off the ground. It's harder to do that than to keep it in the air. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, moving on from this project, Priya, what are other activities and goals you hope to engage in and accomplish at the TNC in the future? How to think about equity in conservation. Um, what frameworks to use in integrating equity into conservation and what does that actually mean in terms of projects on the ground, guidelines and whatnot. And this sort of brings me back full circle to my work in Madagascar uh, because that was a very important institutional change there, creating a protected area, which was very important, critical to do for given that lemurs are nowhere else in the world. 
which had very significant implications for those local communities um, who were uh, tremendously poor. So I'm very interested in understanding what equitable conservation means. We've um, done some work recently grappling with this within the organization to understand where projects have tried to integrate equity into their work. What has that actually meant? What types of instruments have they used? Um, and what enabling conditions, you know, based on their own reflections, uh, have helped them uh, use a more equity, equitable lens to their own work. So we've, we've, we've grappled with that a little bit and tried to link that to external frameworks that are available on uh, integrating equity with conservation. Uh, but going forward, one of my goals is to think about big global processes, because there's a lot of stuff that happens, you know, UN Decade on Restoration. Uh, the 30 by 30 initiative, which seeks to protect 30% of the earth's lands and waters by 2030, um, NDCs, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and really ask how can these large global processes, which are, I have come to believe, incredibly important to push the earth and push several influential actors forward um, on certain key conservation-related issues. How do we ensure that these processes service the needs of local communities, especially poor and marginalized communities? So that's, you know, to me, it, it, it allows me to grapple with my origin story mm-hmm. and, and my interest in economic development, because a big part of it is distributive equity. It's not the only consideration, but that is a big part of it. Um, And it seems like it's a really important um, issue to consider if we want some of these global strategies to actually be successful, let alone uh, ethically correct, right? So there's the ethics of it, the importance of thinking through equitable solutions. But also we know that much of this will not succeed if they don't work well at the very local level mm-hmm. or communities and people. So it's it's both sort of from an efficiency and an equity perspective. Yeah. I'm deeply interested in like this marriage between local agency and global policy considerations. Okay. I mean, it's very interesting, Priya. I mean, it, it reminds me of two thoughts I've had. Part of it is a part of the conversation we had earlier about how we think about community and that there has been this push um, in the last several decades towards um, decentralization and making sure that communities are empowered to participate in larger scale initiatives. But then there was, I think, an important response to that that said, look, communities aren't these administrative artifacts that allow us to implement things from, from the top. They are heterogeneous and diverse in ways that impact how some people might benefit from a project, but not others. Right. And something I've been struggling with um, from a policy perspective for the last several years is just this observation that it's always harder to help the people that need the help the most, right? The people who are going to 
the people who have resources are the ones who can use those to benefit from projects more. And I think we saw this during the COVID pandemic, right? Like funds were distributed and a lot of those funds didn't go to the neediest. And there's a predictable reason why is because to benefit from aid, you often need, you know, you need a car, you need, right. you need time, you need these initial resources that if you don't have means you're not going to be able to get through. It's, it kind of reminds me of the poverty trap discourse is that when you don't have different types of capital, it's hard to get off the ground to get that capital in the first place to help yourself. Right. And, you know, I have, um, as an economist, I, um, I used to come to this equity issue from a distributor perspective. You know, when you have distribution of money for COVID, how do you, you know, how do you understand who actually gets it? And how do you make sure that people who have the least ability, as you say, to, to access information and resources are able to access, uh, access these? But I've also come to recognize that you, you can't start with that when a crisis hits. Mm. right because okay. then then things happen <laughs> they just evolve and they fall where they fall and so a lot of this work uh, on um, recognizing agency and and the voice of marginalized communities uh, social media that allows communities to connect with each other and get strength from each other's actions and learn from each other's actions uh, the support that we provide for these moments almost, which seems seem to me from a very sort of academic economics perspective, you know, we're just dispersing these, these are dispersed efforts, efforts do they really matter? But the, all of that is really important to ensure that people actually have the agency to access resources when they need it. And then creating the right institutions so that people can participate in decision-making at whatever level, right? I mean, if you don't have an institution in place that enables people to participate, how, how are they going to access things when they need them? Mm-hmm. So, so thinking about the design of institutions at different levels, the work that folks like you do, I think is incredibly important for that reason to, to enable that agency to, uh, to work in the way it's supposed to work. So I have um, broadened my view on what it takes mm to enable communities to succeed, Um, Mm. you know, and I, there's no easy solution. It's not that I have a solution in mind, but I have a broader perspective on it now than I used to have. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, even the word succeed can be challenging not to sound so much like an academic. Um, Right. But one of the things I think you realize in community-based work over time is that you never get to the end of the rainbow and are done, right? There's, you, things are good for five years and then some corruption issue arises or people have a falling out or just the normal stuff of life is happening in a community that happens. And so maybe you're fine for a while and then you're not. And then someone else steps up and like helps things go. And like, that's just kind of the way it goes. Um, okay. Well, so Priya, this has been really great. Are there any final topics that you want to make sure that we cover before we wrap up? No, I think we're good. I think we're good. Um, let's um, let's hope you got everything you needed to get out of it, and I'll look forward to the edited version. That sounds great. Well, again, Priya, this has been really wonderful. I, I really appreciate your time and um, the chances to kind of talk to you about these different ideas. 
Yeah, good. Thank you, Michael. Thank you again. I'll be in touch. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.